Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 240, air date January 31st, 2018. Good evening, and welcome to About the Valley. And uh, we have to have someone turn down the TV here. Monitor got turned up by someone. Okay. All right, there we go. I want to introduce you to my guest. I'm Harry Berkowitz, by the way. My guest tonight is Shiva Adelre. I adore. I adore. I'm terrible with names. No problem. Shiva, you but did a great job. Shiva is a, Senate, a candidate for the U.S. Senate, which the election is up this November. We're going to uh, elect a new senator, we hope. <laughs> and so and he's a candidate, and you're an independent candidate. I'm running as an independent, that's right. Yeah. So he, it, he doesn't have to worry about the primary in September. He just has to worry about getting elected in November. That's right. So well, we have to get our 10,000 signatures. And we get yeah, on the that, that's a big job. Um, you know, but, you know, but we've been running against Warren. We were the first candidate to announce, as you right. probably know, in February 2017, after I came back from the inauguration. And we've been essentially campaigning against Elizabeth Warren uh, from day one. Uh, you know, we've been exposing her contradiction from day one. We're the one who came up with the hashtag fake Indian. <laughs> um, and, you know, now even the globe has picked it up. You know, they won't give us credit, but finally the globe yeah. has picked it up because we were the ones who really exposed the fact that she's got a serious problem by the fact that she lied, and she is a hypocrite. She got into Harvard on false pretenses. I want to get into that, but first, I think we've got to first cover the fact that you are the inventor of email. That's a fact. You know, uh, it's a great, it's an American story, the invention of email. It, it, it's an American thing now. I mean, everybody does it. Everyone uses <laughs> it, and it's an, it's an important story because, you know, I did many other inventions beyond the invention of email. In fact, the latest company that I'm working on, Cytosolve, uh, we're finding cures for pancreatic cancer to Alzheimer's. A by big factor. By, it, it's a big problem, but we are figuring out a way, or, or figured out a way, to model the human cell on the computer. So we're eliminating the need for animal testing. We're able to understand at the molecular systems level based on the known science what's going on. So the invention of email is an important American story because it didn't occur by the military, it didn't occur at MIT, it didn't occur at a big university, it occurred in Newark, New Jersey uh, in 1978. And more importantly, I was a 14-year-old kid. Way back in 78. 78. 78. And you, so man, no one knew about it. Well, well, no. Well, the people who used it knew about it. Um, by the way, you know, email really didn't become a consumer application until 1993. But the invention... With AOL, right? Uh, with AOL, uh, when Hotmail came out, you know, when the web came out. You right. Know, the Internet's been around for years. But I think everybody remembers AOL and You've Got Mail. You've Got Mail, AOL. Uh, yeah, exactly. But that's when email went from an office application... Um, to becoming a consumer application. I mean, the history of email is really the history of innovation. It, it's the ecosystem where innovation comes from. If we really look at it, 
Um, you know, I was a 14-year-old kid. <laughs> I was one of those kids who came from India when I was seven, legally immigrated here, my parents, and was very, very appreciative of what America had to offer. By the time I was 14, I'd finished up calculus, and I started working full-time because I had the opportunity to go to a special program at New York University as a 14-year-old kid. While I was in high school, I would commute 30 miles into the heart of Newark, New Jersey, and I was given a challenge by a great mentor uh, who said, look, we ha uh, you may remember this. Many people over the age of 40 remember the old inner office mail system. Remember a secretary? Yeah. She had a desktop. She had an inbox always on her desk, an outbox. She right. had uh, metal file folders underneath her desk. She had a trash can. She had this thing called a typewriter. She'd uh, write a thing called a memo, which had to, from, subject, and then she'd do what was called carbon copies. Right. You know, with the bond paper, the carbon. Yeah. And so if she had to do 10 carbon copies, she'd be typing five times over and over again. And she put that memo with an attachment with a paper clip. If, if you were hiring someone, if you were doing a research grant proposal in this medical school where I worked at, and then that thing got put into a little string envelope and got put into these pneumatic tubes. That was the inner office mail system that most people knew. That was the way communication took place. Right. That's how collaboration took place before social media, uh, everything. And I was asked to convert that entire system, Harry, to the electronic version. Not just the simple text messaging. You know, on those early computers, you could send these little, you know, text messages. That's right. not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the whole system. I wrote 50,000 lines of email um, uh, uh, computer code and called it email, a term never used before in the English so language. So you came up with the term email. I not, well, I also created the system email. I right. defined email as we know it today. And I got accepted to MIT in 1981. This was in 78. And uh, when I went to MIT, on the front page of MIT, they highlighted three students, and I was one of them. Now, remember, I was brought up to be a very good, humble Indian kid. I said, well, that's interesting. <laughs> and and I, uh, the, in, in, in the fall of 81, I was elected student body, uh, freshman class How president. How old were you when you went to MIT? I was 16, 17, 17. Yeah, 16, wow. 17. Yeah, I had just turned 17. And, and when I went to the president's house for Christmas dinner, he said, you know, it's unfortunate you can't patent software. You see, the politicians in Congress still today, many of them do not know anything about technology. They thought software was sheet music, like you're writing something. Oh, and in so they thought it was copyrighted. Copyrighted, exactly. So 1980, they had um, changed the Copyright Act of 76 to say you could copyright software. Now, I didn't know this. My parents weren't lawyers. They right. were hardworking engineers and you know, workers. And so the president of MIT is the one who told me you should copyright it. So I wrote away for the form. There was no internet, per se, like the web or PDFs. Yeah, you couldn't go on the, on you the internet. Got it. You had to wait a week. You got your forms, filled it out. And it wasn't as simple as just putting a little C with your circle. I had to send in all my code. I was 18, 19 years old, 18 years old, I think, at the time. Did it all myself, went back and forth. And on August 30th, 1982, an American kid... Uh, received the first U.S. copyright, recognizing me as the inventor of email. It was, you know, the first copyright for email. Whoa. And this is significant because the Supreme Court was not recognizing software patents. If patents were available, I would have done that. So the fact is I created the system, called it email, and have the first U.S. copyright for it. Um, anyway, so it was done in Newark, New Jersey. <laughs> and I think the important part of it for everyone listening is all great innovations, um, many of the greatest innovations are not created by the military, um, are not created in big universities. Oh, no. They're, uh, a young 14-year-old kid invented TV. Uh, people want to look it up, Philo Farnsworth. Philo, Philo Farnsworth, Exactly. Yes. So, you know, that's the truth about the invention of email. 
I went on to MIT, did he four developed degrees. The cardio to, uh, he did many things. Very prolific inventor. Yeah. Um, when he when he came out, RCA really went after him, uh, heard him yeah. for nearly 19 years. He, uh, I believe, died an alcoholic, and and only recently is there a statue of him in Washington recognizing him as the inventor of TV. But you know. This is a, the well, realities of big guys always try to crush the small guys. Te as Tesla, Tesla as well. Tesla, same thing. Yeah. He, same thing. And, and Edison, who got credit for a lot of inventions, never invented any of them. Yeah. He had people working for him that did it. Right. Yeah. So. I, I'm amazed though about the email. I never, I never realized that. I, you know, but you never think about it. You use it all the time. But where did, where, where did this come from? Where did it come from? People mix it with text messaging. It was only five, six years ago. You know, I did many other things, made a lot of money inventing many other things, got four degrees from MIT, started seven companies. Um, it was only four or five years ago in 2011. My mom was dying of a horrible disease called pulmonary fibrosis in a beautiful suitcase, an old Samsonite. She'd saved all the copyright notices, all the computer code, the well, tapes, and she presented to me. You have a copyright number on your... Everything. Everything. That's, it's black and white. A 14-year-old kid invented email. There's no controversy except to the people who are either don't want to accept it, uh, have a problem with a 14-year-old uh, kid doing it, or, you know, there's other narratives. And the interesting but thing if you, is... But if you copy, if the copyright office issued a copyright it's, it's, to you... It's black and white. There's no denying it. There's no denying when it. So when my mom, they're very particular about that. Very particular. You know, my mom gave me the suitcase in 2011. I'd forgotten all about it. Time magazine came over. People want to Google it. You know, check out the man who invented email. Time wrote a beautiful article called "The Man Who Invented Email." Wow. Three months later, in in February 2016, 2012, went into the Smithsonian. Washington Post reporter wrote a great article, and that's when. Uh, you know, people got very upset because during those 35 years when I didn't promote myself, a defense contractor had rewritten the narrative that text messaging was email when it isn't. No, it isn't. It no. is it's not no, email. It's completely different. And, and they completely confuse people. So anyway, uh, people call me all sorts of horrible names saying <laughs> this curry-stained Indian should be beaten and hanged. The, the level of abuse, and if you see it, most of it came from the liberal media who wants to supposedly help Minorities like myself succeed, but when I succeeded, not under their bounded rules, it becomes shocking to them. No, they only want to help minorities who have no money, and and they and they want to keep them. them on a leash, yeah, and in a cage, right? And uh, like minorities and like illegal immigrants, they want to use them so they can be a voting block for them, and that's the exploitation that takes place in this country. That's absolutely wrong. Now the problem with me was I wasn't willing to be a good Indian. I fought back, and they don't like that either. Well, the thing is, you came here, or your father came here first, contributed to the betterment of the country. Oh, yeah, my parents were quite amazing people. You know, we came from, a, in India, where we were considered untouchables or deplorables, low-caste Indians. You won't find a lot of Indians like me here, and America was a great, is a great country. Right. And my, uh, my dad and my mom both had to uh, submit reference letters, college, uh, uh, their grades, um, they were basically the, cre the cream of the crop in India, and it was a merit-based immigration. You know, uh, they didn't actually have to come here. They came here for my sister and I, and so they had, you know, they added tremendous value to this country. My dad ended up becoming the director of manufacturing at what is now known as Colgate. He's a great chemical oh, engineer. Colgate Palmolive. Col yeah. Uh, uh, my mom, a uh, mathematician, computer scientist. <laughs> 
you know, worked in Newark also. So these were very, very hard-working well, people. And people realize it. India is very hot on education. They've got, you've got that university, was in Bombay or somewhere in that area? IIT, yeah. So, yeah. So, so, yeah, so in, Indians are taught that your way out of poverty is through education. Right. And so people work very hard um, to, and, you know, my dad originally grew up in Burma in World War II, uh, walked back to India. Oh. My mom grew up with nothing, you know, uh, uh, you know, one of nine children. So the fact they even got educated, they're pretty extraordinary people. And that's, yeah. But that's what America is. Anyone listening to the show <laughs> knows that all of us came from immigrants. And right. it wasn't about, you know, being an elite. It was about working hard, taking risks, and putting the sweat in. And that's what makes this country great. Well, that's the other thing. You know, the immigrants that came in the past for the most part, came here like Tesla and really helped to move this economy along, came up with new ideas, new concepts. They built this country, a lot of those immigrants. I think Westinghouse was an immigrant, if I recall. Oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, I mean if, and, and they all come with, I, Carnegie was an immigrant yeah. from Scotland. These are, and, and you're seeing that with, with the Indian immigrants, but you've got a lot of these immigrants that come here, and they only come here to take, uh, a lot of cases, pick up on welfare checks well what you have now is it's a very in interesting world now you have uh immigrants picking up welfare checks you have other people who are also quote-unquote citizens of this country living off welfare right and but you couldn't come here years past if you couldn't show that you could self-sufficient weren't self-sufficient i had a sponsor who would guarantee that they would take care of you yeah and, now, and well, what, what's fundamentally happened in, in, in many ways is that what we've created is an environment that actually uh, profits politicians yes. who essentially identify with people right. who are illegal immigrants and who don't have to work hard. Yep. And there's a whole section of people who are doing that. And, and that's not a good thing for the long-term benefit of this country. But if you look at Massachusetts alone, the reason that people uh, like Massachusetts, the, the, I would say probably the number one reason is innovation. Um, 33,000 businesses came out of MIT. Two trillion in annual uh, uh, support for the revenue. That means those 33 businesses generate two trillion in revenue, which is for the GDP. That's right. nearly 10% of the GDP comes from these people who worked hard and created 33 thousand innovative businesses. Now you contrast that to Massachusetts on the flip side, right? One of the worst infrastructures from the civil engineering report that came out, uh, three times the national average in opioid addiction, and then you have the fact that it has the worst public integrity. So these career politicians, I don't know what they have to praise well, for the themselves. Because they can't fix anything. You know, they don't innovate. Well a big part of it is the fact that we have that prevailing wage in Massachusetts. And it costs you so much more per mile to pave. I think it's about three it, times as much. It's as three times. Pay. The overhead factor is, is at the highest, I think, in the country. Yeah, it's the yeah. highest in the country. And, you know, nothing gets somebody making a decent wage, but you don't have to make more than a decent wage. Yeah, and, and I think there's a very big correlation, not only in Massachusetts. I mean, you could look at this in the United States and globally with corruption right. and infrastructure. And yeah. Massachusetts is on both of them. High corruption, public integrity report, one of the lowest in public integrity and the worst infrastructure. So I would argue that 
we need people like myself, like you and others who actually have created stuff, uh, you know, serving and then going back. Right. The founders of this country, if we look at it, were immigrants. They, they were blacksmiths. They were soldiers. They were farmers. Right. Washington was a surveyor, as you know. He served and then he went back for many years on his farm as a business person and worked. Um, so I think it's really important for people to understand that uh, it's really the power of you and I that moves this country forward. Well, you know, we're here in the Blackstone Valley, which is now a national park, National Historic Park. And what that came, the reason that came about was a guy named Samuel Slater came here and started a cotton mill where he processed cotton into, into fiber. And he, it couldn't be done anywhere in the world except Great Britain because they held all the patents and they held all the knowledge and wouldn't let it out. But he came over here with the, within his mind. He knew how to do it. So they couldn't see him taking any plans out because the plans were in his head. Came here, built the mill, and it sparked a, an industrial, a, the industrialization of, the, uh, of America right along the Blackstone Yeah, River. I mean, what Slater did, and then, then he went on to, with Lowell, right? Yeah, then uh, he was well, very close to Lowell came up with the concept of an, of an industrial park. Yeah. And what they did is they brought the farm girls in, housed them, fed them, had matrons that keep an eye on them, and paid them. <laughs> and they lived in, 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 in that complex that was called Lowell. Yeah. He, I, he, I mean, if you look at his story, and you look at the story that when you create something, using your own mind, you manifest it, and then you have to create all these other things. That's right. what creates a country. Uh, well, and, and my view is it's a great service. To, first of all, it's a great gift to be able to do that in a country that allows you to do that, then right. to be able to serve that country and then go back. Yes. Um, so part of you know, what we've been looking at is innovating a new way. You know, this government is supposed to be a government for the people, by the people. Right. What it's really become is a government for the establishment by the establishment. And it's, it's a government system for the establishment by the establish, uh, establishment. It's a health care system for the establishment by the establishment. And it's an economy for the establishment by the establishment. And it's walled off for them. And we're on the outside. And my view is the power of you and I comes when we bring that together and we bust up those walls and we really start looking at what that looks like. And what that looks like is clean government you know, real health and real jobs. So for us, you know, and, and I'd like to talk more about this, the, the clean government piece is 80% of Americans say we need term limits. Well, uh, you know, nearly every American believes in voter IDs. Um, and, and then finally, you know, the concept of you have to have campaigns, finance limits. These three things are what I'm going to fight hard for, for, you know, creating well, you know, clean term government. Limits, I tend to agree we already have it. It's called an election. It's just that the people got to wise up and vote the incumbents out of there if they're not doing their job, or if they're not doing what they should be well, doing. Well, the interesting thing is, you know, I'm an outsider to all this, right? What I see happening is in every, you know, I, when I look at, Harry, when I look at anything, I'm an engineer, right? right? I look at nature as the most amazing engineer. Nature's already figured out all the laws, you know? It has, uh, you know, you have 10 trillion cells in your body. You don't have one cell, which means it believes in decentralization. It believes intelligence is everywhere. Nature has things that begin and they end. Nothing right. survives forever, right? So it itself imposes term limits. And, and my view is that what I see happening is so much collusion and cliques get created. 
and starts at the local level. You have a local state rep, you have a local uh, senator, and these guys are building all their political capital, and they reuse it. My view is that term limits mean that you have two terms in any position, and you're done. Federal, local, anything. You serve, and, and you should finish up. You should be honored that you're able to serve. Well, you know, you, you take uh, the presidency, for example. It was two terms up until Roosevelt. That's right. And he'd still be president if he lived, because he would just keep running. Right. So that's why they introduced the, the constitutional, they amended the Constitution and limited, the first president limited to two terms was Harry Truman. Well, what's interesting is uh, the Supreme Court struck down term limits. You probably know that. Yes. And what's fascinating is these guys have no term limits. Right. You know, they get, they get a term for life or as long as they well, want to they stay Well, they struck it down because you really have to, you have to constitutionally uh, introduce term limits because the Constitution specifies what the term is and doesn't say it's limited. Yeah. Because back in those days, uh, back in the, when, we, when the country began, most of them wouldn't stay there that long. That was never their idea. The, I, it was always the, 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 the fundamental assumption was, course, it, was a, it was service it was, and you were done. It was an extreme sacrifice back right. then. Exactly. I mean, if, if you were from Massachusetts and you had to go down to Washington, you weren't getting home on the weekends. And you weren't getting home very often unless there was a great, uh, you know, it had a lot of good long recess. So you could travel home. And, and that wasn't easy because you were traveling home in a, in a stagecoach. Or a horse. Yeah. Or a horse. Yeah. So it wasn't, a, it wasn't an easy thing to do. So, you know, they limited themselves because they didn't want to go through that. Yeah. Well, now it's become a model where you create your career out of it. Right. But People you also see when they retire, we'll give a good example, Harry Reid. Did he move back to Nevada? No, he lives in Washington. That's where he stayed. Bob Dole on the other side. Bob Dole still lives in Washington. He came from Kansas. He was a senator from Kansas, but he didn't move back to Kansas. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. I, I think the imposition of term limits, in our view, is, is the essence of the pillar of clean government. We need to have voter IDs. I mean, you got to understand, I, um, as, when I was at MIT, I came to the conclusion both of these parties work against the people. And I learned that. Remember when Jesse Jackson was running? Yes. I said, wow, he sound, looks like he's an anti-establishment candidate. And if you remember, at the last minute, everyone go back, he gives this ridiculous speech and he gives all of his votes to Mondale. Right. Uh, saying that we need to go after Reagan. So basically, he was saying you, could, you have to choose the lesser of two evils. Yeah. So I never voted as a, because I never liked either party. When Trump ran, I said, wow, this guy's a real disruptor. He was willing to expose the media. So it's the first time, you know, I actually participated to vote. And I remember voting, going to Belmont to vote. I had my ID, my passport. No one asked me for any ID. They just said, where do you live? I said, <laughs> I live in this road over here. And they let me vote. Now, in any other country in the world, you know, even in countries that we say are third world, where we used to send observers, right? Um, it's almost like that we need to have observers here now. It's an unfortunate situation. Voter IDs are not discriminatory. It's a part of making sure that everyone's playing fair. Yeah, I don't see a problem with it. You can, you can get the ID for nothing. Yeah, the only reason someone would want it is so they could have fake voters. Right. So that's the only reason. And the third part is, you know, I've put forward a thing and I a pledge where people should not r raise or spend more money than what I call one dollar, one vote. You know that you cannot open a bank account without an ID? You can't do a lot of things without an ID. So what's the problem with having an ID? Because right. if, if, you, if you don't have a driver's license, you want to open a bank account, you got to go down and get a photo ID from the registry. Yeah. 
and they're available. I don't think they even charge for them. They don't. They're, 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 you, you can't, uh, you go to a school, you can't go use a cafeteria, you can't use no. a library without an ID. Right, so every a photo ID. A photo ID. And so, I believe a lot of high schools now require photo ID for students. Yeah, many systems need that for basic security. So, so the fact what, we love voting. the problem with having a voter ID? And we know, I mean, I know in New Hampshire, when they have their primary, they bust people up from Massachusetts and they give them an address. They'll hand them someone's electric bill. Hey, can go vote on this. Now. Here's your address. Here's the address. And because in yeah. New Hampshire, you can vote with an address. Yeah. But Same day registration. That's right. But I'm saying the career politicians and their consultants and all the people that do this, they've become so uh, good at doing this. Right. So an outsider coming in, an inventor scientist like myself versus a career politician or lawyer lobbyist who actually believes the game is fair, um, it's, it's not fair to everyday people who are looking f to participate in government. So the third part, Harry, of our clean government thing is that I call it one dollar one, one vote. It's not about buying votes, but it says let's look at the total number of registered voters. Like in Massachusetts, around 4.3 million. Mm -hmm. One dollar. That means you should only be able to raise or spend $4.3 million. Now, Elizabeth Warren's already raised $14 million. Oh, I know. Scott She's Brown still and Warren money. spent, let's say, close to, if you actually include all of it, probably a quarter of a billion dollars. That means that your message is probably not that great. You need to pummel people during six weeks with TV advertising. If that's the name of the game, something's really wrong because it's an advertising. Randolph Hearst said this. He said, Randolph Hearst, big publisher, he said, you know, right. political campaigns are an advertising campaign. That's anti-democracy. So my view is, I challenge er anyone running to say you're not going to spend more than five million bucks. That's well, yeah. it. You got WMUR up in New Hampshire. That station was built on presidential advertising. Yeah. In the primaries, I mean, they spent so much money. The the thing is, she's lo loading up her war chest not to run for the Senate, because she wants to win the Senate seat and then run for president in two years. Yeah, but I'm saying both parties do this thing. They uh, they have candidates running, even in the Republican Party. None of them are really intent on defeating Elizabeth Warren. I'm the only one who wants to defeat her. Uh, what I've learned is one guy's running so he could potentially be governor. Another guy's running to build his brand equity. All insiders. And that's what's unfortunate. No one really wants to beat Elizabeth Warren. And what's really bad for this state and this country is Elizabeth Warren, in my view, is the face of the deep state. She's the face of what I call the military-industrial-academic complex. If you think about it, if anyone wants to visualize this, draw a triangle, put the defense contractors on one uh, apex, put big industry, and then you put big academia. Elizabeth Warren's face is right in the middle. And one part of that is big academia, Harvard. Harvard is fundamentally a fake university. I know this quite well, you know, if you really look at it, it's, they spent about $1 to $2 billion to pay their staff. The other $40 billion is a hedge fund. Their hedge fund managers got paid $58 million. So, so she gets they funded get the by... the largest endowment in the largest, world. But it's a, it's a Wall Street hedge fund. You know, last year they raised $7 billion in capital. So Elizabeth Warren's part of this Wall Street hedge fund. Uh, sorry to say, you know, Romney and Baker both came out of there. And if you think about it, the, the sewer of Harvard really feeds a swamp in D.C., Half of the Supreme Court justices are from Harvard. So I put all of them in one big swamp. And not that I really, you know, MIT's got its issues, but go down the street. Those guys generated 33,000 businesses, $2 trillion in revenue. 
So you got one set of the Harvard class moves around people, thinks they're better than everyone, thinks they're better than the working people. They're the ones who breed the career politician. And then you got down the street the high-tech blue-collar workers who actually produce value. So I think the other piece of that triangle, so you got academia, big academia. Elizabeth Warren's part of that. Then you got the other piece of it, which is the big industry. Elizabeth Warren, to people interested in health and well-being, voted for the Monsanto Protection Act. One of our, the big evil company who has created glyphosate Roundup, which poisons our children, which created genetically engineered foods, which my research has shown are unsafe, have no safety assessment standards. Elizabeth Warren voted for the Monsanto Protection Act. That's, so she supports a company which poisons kids, which is one of the most evil corporations. And then she sits on the Armed Services Committee. You know, think about that. She's part, she has supported weapon systems that do not work, you know, and her direct connection to Hillary Clinton, who's gotten us involved in many wars. So you have a person who's part and the face and the salesperson of the deep state. And that's what we have in Massachusetts. So this election is not just about, you know, defeating Elizabeth Warren. It's much more fundamental because in Massachusetts, 2.3 million people are independents. It's not a blue state or a red state. 1.5 million Democrats, many of them who are holding their noses to vote for Warren, and then you have about a half a million Republicans. That's the reality here. You know, for me, running as an independent, on the one hand, people think I'm a lefty because I attack Monsanto, but I also expose the lack of uh, any type of logic in the Paris Accords. You know, the, the Paris Accords have nothing to do with uh, stopping pollution. They actually let China pollute another yeah, 11 billion tons of carbon. They allow big polluters to do more. They allow polluters to do a lot more. So the fundamental issue here is we got to start thinking not left or right, not liberal or conservative, but we got to look at issues and look at them what's good for you and I. But the establishment likes to create five issues, abortion, taxes, transgender, and then they like to split us. Right. And the reality is that's why I think we need everyday people like myself, real business people, real people who created stuff, uh, participating, uh, treating this as an honor, not as career politicians who do their, you know, whatever, you know, their insider trading, and then go back to work, have a job. We'll get into you a little bit. What do you, what do, you do right now? Uh, well, I'm running this campaign full time, you know? Really? Yeah, yeah. But I also have a, uh, you know, I, I created a really great company. It's, it came out of my own invention called Cytosolve. I'm the chairman of that. And we have another educational company called Systems Health, where, you know, I'm very much So you're able to subsist on the fact that you have a company and... Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I mean, look, Harry, everything I have has come from an idea that right. I came up with, created it, then had to take that idea, bring other people, you know, go out there and work my butt off and make money and then give jobs to other people. Yep. That's what America is. That's what Americans are. Americans are not supposed to be career politicians who've moved money around and that's all they do for a living. That's un-American. I would say let's take all those people who do that kind of work, who live off welfare, and let's make them illegal citizens. Let's, 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 let's take, you know, there are a lot of, you know, this may seem counterintuitive. There are some, quote, unquote, illegal citizens who actually work pretty hard. Right. I would say let's take all these people on welfare and say, you know what, either you can get off welfare or we're going to take these illegal citizens and we're going to switch, give them citizenship. Well, if you're able-bodied, you should work. I mean, and, and that yeah. is job. Well, job. academia, by the way, is the biggest welfare system. Think about it. The academics get government grants. Harvard gets government grants. 
They take donor money, sell professorships. Well, they, I mean, they're paying Elizabeth Warren. A, a, they're paying her $350,000. For what? For, for one course. Yeah. So. What's it, teach an hour a week or something? Teach an hour a week. But you, you'll never see any of the politicians attack any of these elites from Harvard because they're all part of it. Mitt Romney, you know, everyone talks about the opioid addiction. We think it's a border issue. Come on, let's be really honest. Those are people just parroting stuff. The reality is the opioid addiction is due to big pharma and the fact that it is profitable to keep people on opioids. You know, methadone clinics are making people a lot of money. Mitt Romney started a company, aggregated methadone clinics, put in about $718 million, and then flipped it for $1.3 billion. So politicians make money from addiction. They don't want to solve it. I met an amazing doctor who actually had a solution, was curing people in the home, and he got thrown in jail in Massachusetts. He helped 250,000 patients over 25 years, and he actually helped these patients where he said, look, the rehab doesn't work, the methadone does, doesn't work, you have to go in the homes, give a holistic program of behavioral changes. He was curing people, um, and he got shut down. So the reality is the swamp economy, as I like to call it. So he was doing, he was doing it and helping people. Medicine. He was doing holistic medicine, but giving people because the, rea the reality is the opioid addiction issue is when, it, when an addict gets up in the morning, you and I think about I'm going to make coffee and breakfast, right, the behavioral issue is they, they want to go get their fix. Right. So his issue is you, if you take people out of the home and you bring them back into the home, they're, they, it's 98% recidivism. What we really need to do is he figured out is detox people in the home environment, get the family involved, change their lifestyle. That's what changes it. But no one wants to address it. They rather take the people from yeah, opioids, so you, move them to methadone. What he's saying is it's, it's, not, it's, it's not just physical, it's mental. It's, it's mind-body connection. Right. You know, I came from, uh, when, when I was growing up in India, my grandmother's a poor farmer. Uh, she worked 16 hours a day in the fields, but she was a village healer. She learned traditional systems, Indian medicine. She used herbs, uh, different types of yoga and meditation. This is not woo-woo medicine anymore. 36 million Americans practice yoga. Our real health... Well, they find a lot of these... What you would call old countries, uh, they work. work very well. They work very well. Big pharma is a disease, and we need different cures. So, you know, one of my companies, Cytosolve, we're literally able to predict what's going on, what works, what doesn't, using the computer. You, can't, you don't have to kill animals. And the other piece of my companies, we're re-educating doctors. That's called systems health. So, you know, that's what my PhD is in, in this field. Um, so you're looking at someone who actually knows how to solve the health problem. I don't need consultants. And the fundamental way to solve health, we've talked about clean government, we, again, three points here. One is it's real food is real medicine, period. You know, right. everyone uh, has known this for years, even in this country. Second thing is we've got to lower the cost in the, uh, of health care. And the way you lower the cost, we've got to get, get rid of mi middlemen. A lot of people don't know there's a group called the GPOs. Um, these guys are three monopolies who control the supply chain of drugs from the manufacturer, to the doctor, to the pharmacy, um, they fundamentally are highly corrupt. They get kickbacks. Very little is known to the everyday person. A $2 generic drug, they're able to crank it up to $32,000. And that's what we need to go after fiercely. And the third part of you know, the real health model is we need to allow direct pay. We don't need insurance companies. When you really look at it, what we really need to go to is crisis insurance and direct pay. In the old days, you paid 15, 20 bucks, you had your local doctor. Because of Obamacare and Romneycare, we have now lost nearly 200,000 family practitioners. 
My sister went to Harvard Medical School. She goes, Shiva, it's hard for me to practice. She's a family practitioner. She's, at, she's left medicine because the amount of regulations. So what the politicians have done is they've actually created centralized government. So they've told us that, oh, um, you need better health care, but they've Sovietized health care. Well, so finding big insurance, they created big hospitals and big doctors, not the local doctor. Healing occurs in the one-on-one, -on -one, you as a doctor looking at me, looking at my face and understanding who Well, I doctors am. aren't going into private practice because it's so expensive. It's too, too it's, it, you can, you come out of, okay, you come out of four years of undergraduate. Right. You got 40, 50, 100,000 in loans. Then you go to medical school, another 100,000. Yep. Then two, so you're coming out with nearly, let's say, half a million in loans. Right. So you are incented to go join a big hospital. Right. So we've dis Obamacare and Romneycare, the insurance companies, have destroyed medicine. So you got to go back to food, real food. We got to get rid of companies like Monsanto. We got to make sure people can direct pay, and we got to lower the cost of healthcare. Big pharma is not going to do it. The company I've created, Cytosol, that helps us create drugs faster and cheaper. We discovered a drug for pancreatic cancer. People can check this out. We got FDA allowance in a record 11 months for multi-combination therapy. We need to use computers. We need to use 23rd century technology. And this is, pancreatic cancer is one of the hardest it's a har ones. It's a very hard disease, but I'm saying that I it's innovation. I lost a good friend to it. Yeah, it's a horrible, yeah, I've lost a couple of friends to it, but it's a horrible uh, disease. Alzheimer's, we're working with on Alzheimer's right now. We've mapped out all the molecular pathways. But th That's this, almost becoming uh, epidemic. Trillion, Alzheimer's is gonna be a trillion dollar problem for this country. Yeah, because you've got aging boomers like myself. Age, aging boomers, and the issue is politicians do not know how to solve any of these problems. They will create situations so they can stay in power, and the pharma companies, the Monsantos of the world survive. Well, we're tending to warehouse Alzheimer patients. We stick them in a nursing home and let someone care for them. Yeah. We don't, by the way, you don't have enough people to care for people anymore. No. That, so we don't have people enough people. going into health care. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, so when I look at this, the real opportunity in health is food, believe it or not. You know, the internet... Well, I believe you are what you eat. You are what you eat. The high-tech uh, high internet industry, it's around $400 billion. Guess how big the food industry is? Oh. $4.7 Oh, yeah. And if you start an organic farm today, you're going to make 30% year-over-year profit. 80% of Americans want organic food. Well, it's big, like, like the success of Whole Foods. Success of Whole Foods, success of local farmers. So part of our economic program, you know, we have a very clear program that we want to fight for, uh, for the citizens of this country in Massachusetts, is local trade, no tax. Right. Here's the issue. You're a local farmer. Your local restaurant should be incented to buy from you, not get it from Cisco, all the garbage, you know, non, you know the GMO garbage food that's been sitting around. They should be incented to get food from you. Thriving economy really goes back, that's the third part of our thing is we really need to support Votech jobs. We have, for every 17 skilled job openings in Massachusetts, only one person is skilled. So what are we doing here? We're not, we're not producing enough skilled labor. Well, we don't have enough schools for it. I mean, uh, we have Blackstone Valley Tech here in, uh, in the we, we need like three of those schools in every inner city. It's jammed. They, they, can't, yeah. they, they have to turn students away. Because when I went when I went to school, a Voltech school was where the the kids that didn't do well academically went. It's all right. It's it's the other way around now. You can't get in there unless you're doing academically well, mm -hmm. because so many kids want to get into it. Well, a lot of rich dumb kids go to Harvard. 
30% of Harvard's admissions are legacy admissions because their, right. their mom and well, papa donated or someone made a phone call you know, for them. So, so, and we're graduating kids now who have no skills. Well, what do you get with a, uh, with a liberal education? I mean, what, what, what is that? Well, you, you get, you get indoctrinated. You major in English, in English grammar. Unless you're going to be a teacher, what, what's it going to get you? Yeah, by the way, Charlie Baker got his uh, BS degree in English, just to point, yeah. it, point it. But, but the point is, these guys have no skills. So because they have no skills, what they learn with that kind of degree is how to manipulate people, how to think they're better, entitlement. And, and, and so if you really look at the educational model, what it's become is not, and the banks have been be behind this by giving predatory student loans. So if, as a well, business... Well, that's the government. It's a government. What they're doing is they're incenting a very, very wrong mark, a non-market. I've always said tuitions are as high as they are because the government will give as many loans as they want. Exactly. But, but think about the way they do the loans, Harry. This is how it works. If you, if you started a business and you said, I'm a bank, local bank or bank, uh, and, I, and you asked me for a loan, I'd say, okay, give me your pro forma. Give me your projection for three years. I want to see your cash. Are you really in a business that's going to th thrive? Right? right. Then I'd say yes or no. Now a student comes. And he says, I'm going to be studying the anthropology of aardvarks, right? They don't even care what you're they studying. They don't care, what, but I'm saying, so they're giving these kids loans, and they can't go bankrupt. Yep. These are predatory loans that they're doing. Well, what they're doing is they're giving kids loans because they're backed up by the federal government. Right. So they have nothing to lose. Exactly. Just pick up the interest. Right, so you and I pay but for that. But during the Obama years, you had, to, you had to do your loan through Fannie Mae. Yeah. Because he wanted to fund them back. Yeah. Trump has changed that, so now you can get private, which you can get a better rate. But, but so, my, I, my thing is, though, if you didn't give out the student loans like, they, like candy, then the universities would have to compete for exactly. students, and they would drop their prices because you'd have to drop your price to get people in. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's the right solution because right now what happens is it's a, they, there's no business that runs like this. This is like they get a stream of customers for free right. and they can keep increasing their prices. Yeah. This is So part of when you really look at it in Massachusetts is that we're supposed to be the mecca of education. And in Massachusetts, for every 17 skilled job openings, we only have one person skilled. So what we're doing is we're, we're creating all these elite elites who think they're better than everyone think they're smarter when they actually have no skills. And the universities are essentially uh, uh, making out like a bandit on this. Right. Well, it's and they're under no market forces. So they're basically running a business that has no fundamentals to it. And I, my view is they need to, the, the universities, uh, you know, the whole accreditation process, in my view, we'll talk more about this, is unconstitutional. You and I should be able to start a university. We should bust up these universities. A anyone should be able to teach anything that they want, whatever they want to teach. Um, they, they live off an accreditation model that essentially gives them a captive monopoly. Um, but, but you know, you're talking to, how about, we just had the fact that ITT, a technical school, went out of business. Yeah, it's amazing. And would you think that, because I, the kids aren't interested in getting into it. That's part of the problem, too. Well, what, what's happened is when you create an environment, what we've done with illegal immigration, uh, when you create an environment that um, uh, the skilled labor thing is put down, the American worker value has been diminished. And this, so what happens is you basically are allowing illegal immigrants to take the slack up, and our young people are learning a lot of bad habits, they're not learning a lot of skills, 
and they think they know a lot when they don't know a lot at all. And, they're, and it's essentially creating a society that's not going to be able to compete at all. And because a global elite in this world basically move their money everywhere. They don't really care about this country anymore because they'll invest in any country in the world. So they'll talk a good game about patriotism when it's valuable to them to send poor blacks and poor whites to fight a war for them. But they really don't give a damn about this country anymore. So this is, this is part of their operating business model to create a bunch of people who are not qualified, unskilled, and then you have a pool of illegal immigrants who, unfortunately, they never want to really solve that issue. Congress, it's not the president's job to solve the immigration issue. It's, no, it's Congress's it's job. Congress has to yeah, his job is enforcement, which people forget because they're not studying but there again, civics anymore. The laws on the books now are sufficient. Yeah, if, if, if we just enforce them. If we'd enforce them. Right. But here again, you have to build a wall to partly enforce it. Yeah. So let's, let's give them the funding. You have to have enough uh, border police to enforce it. I mean, Congress has to, has to supply the cash to do it, too. Yeah, I, I think... And it's not just... And, and the leak is not just at coming across the border by land. People fly in here. Yeah. That's a, that's a big way of coming well, in. Well, you know, we have a lot of leaks in the system, but fundamentally, the, the fundamental issue is, it goes back to what, I, what my dad always used to say. He thought, you want a revolution? It's education. So we have to, you know, in all these inner cities, we should be building two to three Votech schools. We should say, look, if you're on welfare, you got a three-year option. You know, you're going to come off of it. You can go get a job. If not, we're, we're going to cut you off. It has to be that straightforward because that's what makes this country well, great. Well, we did that during the Clinton administration, you remember? And Obama yeah. took it all apart after. Yeah. But the welfare rates went down and, and people got jobs. Yeah. There's a lot of And a lot of, of them job. felt bad about themselves after. Right. Yeah, I mean, uh, if you look at the correlation between the loss of manufacturing jobs and the increase in opioid addiction, it's almost, they, they, it's a linear right. correlation. So it's work is the ultimate healer. You know, they took manic depressives. I don't know if you know this. It's a great study. They took manic depressives who were on all this medication. They took them to a farm for 90 days. Everyone got up in the morning and did a good day's work all their symptoms disappeared. You know, as someone who studies biology, someone who studies health, it's a mind-body connection. Uh, what, it's what we put into our bodies is what we do. Getting up and doing an honest day's job really affects your whole body and, your, well, and, and who you are. I believe you need to have a reason to get up in the morning yeah. and it keeps you going. I still work. I'm, I'm going to be 70 years old. It's great. I, I don't want to stop working. Yeah. I'm hoping I, can, I, can, I don't have to. Yeah. Sometimes you, you get to a point where because of your health, you have no choice, but yeah. I don't want to be there. I, I want to be working. Yeah. I, I think if you fundamentally look at where, you know, what, what you know, I want to have the opportunity to serve people, it's really about the power of you and I. Right. And that's what really comes from. And I think most people want to play by the rules. Most people want to do the right thing. But when you create, start creating a culture that you, you change the rules and it's about creating this big, you know, centralized, siloed thing. We know better, you don't. Right. And that's what these politicians do. They know better, and everyone else is stupid. But the reality is, I actually believe you know better. <laughs> you know, Elizabeth Warren thinks she knows better. And that entire liberal well, elite, when I say... A, she comes across like, like your mother scolding you. Yeah, because, because what the reality is, you're talking about someone who's absolutely fake. 
Yep. She's never actually have, ever had to create something. I, she I got into, you know, Harvard by lying. You know, she's a fake fighter, um, a fake Indian. That's why I keep saying only a real Indian can defeat the fake Indian, mm -hmm. because you really have someone who's fake well, on I think we have so to many let levels. The, let the audience know that sure. you're the guy that sent her the DNA kit. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, you know, it, I, I sent her, uh, I think in uh, April, May, May, March, or very few, right after I started my campaign, uh, you know, I'm a biologist. I said, okay, this is very simple. I sent her a DNA test. Get everyone talked about it. Yep. I actually sent it to her, and uh, she returned it. Oh, and she, she returned she it returned, Yeah, when she returned <laughs> it, I put it up on uh, um, my tweet. I had the pictures of the return yep. and went viral on the Internet. <laughs> Fox News had me on. Jesse Waters had me on. Stuart Varney had me on. And remember, all the political experts were saying, oh, you know, Scott Brown did it. It didn't work for him. You shouldn't do it. I said, it doesn't have to do with whether it works or not. The reality is this woman's a liar, right? Yeah. Take and the test. Take the test. And that's been one of our hashtags, take because the test. Because th that test will actually tell you if you're one hundredth of a... By the way, on my sixth chromosome, I actually have Native American genes and Indian genes. So I'm actually an Indian to the power of two. Whoa. So when I say a real Indian... How do you Indian, think that came about? Well, you have to understand, uh, India is actually a melting pot. Right. Oh. So India is... A, so, uh, Tibeto-Burmese genes up in the northwest, yep. those are the people that came over the Bering Strait called the Yakuts. Oh, so that, that, that's the gene we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, that's, yeah. Yeah, so you know, so the reality, this is very easy for yeah. her to confirm this. She's taken away a minority's position by what she did. And by the fact is, the, the other fact is Harvard's in collusion with this because they, you know, they used they this. It. So it's not just her. You know, right. and the fact it. is, we should call her out on this. This well, is not a simple most issue. Most places, if you lie on your employment application, well, gonna, you're fired you're right on the spot. Yeah, yeah. When, when they find out, even if it's a year later, they'll terminate you right. for lying. Right. My opposition, by the way, the guys on the, they said, oh, we're not going to bring this issue up. And after I brought it up, now they bring it up. <laughs> you see, so these guys are opportunists. The issue is you have to go by principles. Uh, the, this woman is lied. She got into Harvard lying, and she continues to lie. She talks about she's for the small guy. She, she supported Dodd-Frank, which destroyed 1,200 community banks. Oh, I right? know. She supports Obamacare, which is... Destroyed the economy as well. Exactly. Uh, you know, I, my bank, where I bank at is Belmont Savings, you know? Yep. And you talk to the local banker there, Hal Tobin, he said she would talk to the ABA. How much the regulations have destroyed community banks. They actually, remember they, they, they said back when the uh, crash came, these big banks are too big to fail. Well, what that Dodd-Frank did is make more banks too big to fail. Exactly. But, but what, so this is the way the politicians work. They'll find some, something that's supposedly bad for us, right, because they know better. Right. But what they'll do is they'll impose a regulation saying we're going after the big, bad, big guys. But for them, it's 0.1% of their P&L. But right. for the small guys, it's like 10% of their P&L. When I had my company, remember when the Anderson and Enron thing took place? Yes. Right? Okay, the government regulators said, yeah, we got to go get, we got to impose more auditing fees. Right? We got to have better auditing. So the average guy who was paying five or $6,000 for an audit, his auditing fees went up to $25,000. Right. The big guys went up a fraction for them. So it, you well, know, so it, that this is a game that these guys play. Right. It's 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 fake fighting. Well, you know, if you, if you go up ten thousand dollars on on a fee, for big guys, no, that's peanuts. For a little guy whose gross is probably 
five hundred thousand a year. It, it's his profit. It, yeah. it, it's his profitability yeah, that he yeah. had. What he would have paid to employees. So my point is that the career politicians who've never run a business, never had to cut a paycheck, they don't know anything about this. They just do what is necessary to get elected and reelected, and that's what's unfortunate. So we got to get rid of all of these guys. Term, term limit them. Voter ID them. You know, shackle them. Then we'll find out, do they really want to serve us or are they in it, in it to make money? Most of these guys are in it to make money, build their brand equity, run their little little cliques. None of them can stand up on their own two feet, serve and leave. And that's why a lot of these people don't like Trump. You know, Trump basically doesn't really have to answer to anyone. He's no. got his wealth over here. He's right. here to serve and he's going to go back. Right. Most of these other guys do not have jobs. Like you said, they have to hang out in D.C. because they don't have a job back home. They're their consultants. But they're making their money off of taking care of people because where else did it come from? Right. Where do these people get all their money when they, you know, they start out? Barack Obama came from a, a single mother. Yeah. Where do you end up with all this money? You know, well, I, I, think, I think that's why I think we really need to put limits on campaign finance, raising, and spending. You know, right. it's like, it's almost like the, what we should really do. If I had it my way, it's like people should have the opportunity to vet people, well, you know, you know and, then, and then say, you know what, you get this much money to run, and that's it. So if your message isn't good, if you can't really articulate it, if you need to have all these political consultants and you need to be able to take so much TV advertising, that means your message really is not resonating. That means you really have no value to the populace, and you should probably step aside. Right. And, and so that's the fundamentals, you know, so our view is you need clean government, we need real health, and we need real jobs. Well, it was a, a number of years ago, probably about 30 years now, maybe longer. Before that, Massachusetts, if you, you raised money to run for office and then retired, you took the money with you. Wow. <laughs> they changed the law a number yeah. of years ago, but I mean, that was ridiculous. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you go out and raise it's, your retirement. It's an honor to be fund. able to serve this country. It's, to me, uh, you know, my journey coming from India. I came here as a seven-year-old kid wearing shorts on a winter's day, <laughs> and I never saw snow. You know, a, a very nice American family took me to the Salvation Army. We got all of our uh, winter jackets, and that's how our journey began. So, so to me, to be in this position, I consider it an honor to serve this country. And it should not be about your click building who gets in, who gets out, and that's what politics has become. And that's why to anyone listening out there, you know, you know, the I in independent, you know, what we're saying is declare your independence from both of these parties. And what better place to start that kind of revolution than in Massachusetts? New England already has a history of that. You know, yeah. by, uh, you know, my defeating Elizabeth Warren, it's not just about my defeating her. I think it should be an inspiration to everyone that everyday people should participate in governance. And we got to make it easy for We're that. We're going to wrap it up by 7.55 because sure. the other show is going to be coming in. Uh, stay tuned. The uh, man cave is coming on right after us. You want to say something real quick before we go? Yeah, so I, I think the key thing I want to say is, you know, uh, this is the power of you and I. It's about us and it's about declaring your independence. Please go to Shiva for Senate, S-H-I-V-A for Senate.com. You can give us as much money as you want, but more importantly, we're looking for people to volunteer. Time is money. 
you know, so your precious time, if you can give it, uh, you know, we're about to start raising signatures. We need people to do uh, door knocking. Just be out there spreading the word. But this is our campaign is about declare your independence from both of these parties. We need to go back to the fundamentals of this country, which is about innovation, innovation oh. and innovation. Shiva, thank you for coming thanks. in. Thanks for having we'll me. We'll try to have you back again. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. And we'll see you thank next you. week on About the Valley.